Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast. This is an election year. Will Donald Trump be re-elected? What is going on with the Democrats? And has America gone even more crazy? We'll be discussing all of these things and more, more than once a week, because we don't feel you have enough Americano in your life. And I have a special offer for Americano listeners. If you want to subscribe to the Spectator's US edition, which is brilliant, by the way, I edit it, you can go to www.spectator.us forward slash subscribe and take advantage of our special Americano offer. If you insert the code Americano in capital letters like Donald Trump on Twitter, you will get 5% off. Please do so. I'm joined today by the Fox News host and truly great American, Tucker Carlson. Tucker, if you haven't been following it, his show has been essential viewing throughout the corona crisis. And I'm very honoured that you've come on the show. Tucker, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, are you kidding, Freddie? It's my honour. Well, honour shared, honour shared. Tucker, you've been very much front and centre of this crisis in the American media landscape. And one thing that a lot of people are talking about is how this crisis has accelerated trends that were happening already. And one of these trends, I think, has been a loss of trust in the integrity of the media. And I think this crisis is going to make that worse. Would you agree? Well, it has made it worse, measurably. I mean, the new Gallup poll numbers, which is the oldest American polling company, are out today. And they show that approval of various institutions related to response to the coronavirus is up. 60%, I think it's as high as ever recorded, trust in or approval of hospitals, of our medical establishment, CDC, is all up. In fact, the overwhelming majority of Americans say they're happy with their employer's response to it, remarkably. The only institution whose numbers are down is the media, and they're underwater by double digits. And that's deserved. I mean, I, what's interesting is, is how difficult it has been for people who are purportedly smart to change their orientation, to respond meaningfully to a change in circumstance. So they spent three and a half years telling you that everything Trump says and tweets is the most important thing and, and the most loathsome thing that ever happened. They've lost perspective completely. And then we have this global pandemic, which did not come out of nowhere, but came at us in very slow motion over a period of months. They refused to even pay attention because there was a Trump impeachment going on. And then it arrives and the hospitals in New York City start filling up and they are still churning out the same dreary palace intrigue stories about, you know, Jared and all these figures in the White House and who said what to whom and will Anthony Fauci get fired? And you just think, boy, talk about failing to rise to the moment. I get that people don't like Trump, but you know, I'm not mad that they don't like him. I think that's fair or not or whatever. That's an opinion. But that you can't pivot and meet the challenge of the moment by definition disqualifies you from holding a position of influence in a civilized country, I think. But, you, I mean, one can sort of understand why the media didn't react to it in the early phases because people weren't that interested in it. It's not just the media's fault. I mean, it's hard to make people realise that this is a, a serious problem. But I think what you've picked up on is that the media on both left and right are so addicted to putting everything in America through the funnel of pro-Trump or anti-Trump that nobody cares about what's actually true. And so when a major story like this happens, both sides go sort of, bananas in their various ways and no one actually talks about whether this is a serious problem or not 
Well, that, that's it. And, and not only what's true, which is obviously the central concern and always is the central concern, but also what's relevant, even what's interesting. I mean, that's why we get paid. So at a time where you can get a pretty comprehensive news rundown on your phone, you have to ask yourself, what's the purpose of journalism, professional, you know, full-time salaried health and insurance journalism? What's our role? And our role is, this is why they pay us, to sift through all the potential things that the public could learn about and figure out what are the things the public should learn about. What's important and what's not? You know, making value judgments about relative importance, that's the whole job right there. And they've lost their ability to do that because – and there are a bunch of reasons for this, and part of it is the, is the collapsing business model of journalism, even digital journalism, that you know, exerts enormous pressure on people's behavior. But it's deeper than that. It's they have – they are too close. They are too emotionally invested in this one man. You know, I supervised reporters for a long time, for 10 years, and I always told them in the same way that, you know, loving someone disqualifies you from covering that person because it clouds your vision. It's a conflict by definition. You can't write, you know, a feature story on your spouse or one of your kids. You also shouldn't be writing about people you hate because you cannot see them clearly. By definition, you are blinded by your own emotion. And we have an entire press corps that hates Trump so much and, and maybe he deserves it or maybe he doesn't. I mean, that's kind of an academic question that we can debate. But it definitely disqualifies them from writing about him because they're going to be inevitably off the mark because they're, you know, they're, they can't see clearly. It's, it's real. Anyway, whatever. This has been going a long time. What bothered me, what enraged me back in January was we had all these reports out of eastern China, out of Wuhan, that there was this you know, transformative thing happening. They shut down a city of 11 million people, bigger than New York, shut down, like mm. actually shut down too. And they still couldn't control it. And, and the obvious conclusion that anyone paying attention would draw is if the most sophisticated authoritarian government in history can't control the spread of this disease, and simultaneously we have hourly capital-to-capital jet travel Maybe this is something we should be paying attention to. I mean, it's just with that fact set alone, you could conclude we need to tell our viewers about this. And almost nobody did because they thought, you know, Trump was the most important thing. It's really dereliction. But, and we should – I hope – the last thing I'll say is when this is over, I really hope that we can learn something useful and corrective going forward. I really do. I love your optimism, but I'm afraid the media's track record doesn't. <laughs> but I mean, no, let's, probably right. you know, it, I, I don't want to blow your trumpet if that's, that's not too disgusting an image. But I think this is something you've been personally quite involved in. I mean, there was a Vanity Fair story about how, you know, you, you yourself went to go and see President Trump. I wonder for our listeners that aren't aware of that story, you could tell us a bit about what happened there. Well, let me just say, I mean, I, I don't think it's hard right now to kind of stand out among American media for just saying common sense things. You know what I mean? It's, there's a very low bar. Yeah. It is like being, you know, the sexiest Supreme Court justice. It's not really a compliment yeah. because the standards are just so low. But in this case, I mean, nothing extraordinary happened with me. I didn't have any special insights of any kind. I just am interested in the rest of the world because I've traveled a lot and just because I'm interested in 
news. And I saw this story, and it was obvious for the reasons just explained that it was a significant or potentially significant one. And then when it began to arrive here, you could just do simple math, and I was hardly the only person doing this, and realize this could be a, a huge problem, and, and it could be especially a problem. I mean, there's nothing, when we don't have proven therapies or a vaccine, there's the medical response is limited, and you have to be honest about that. There's not a lot we can do. But it was obvious that one thing that might happen is that our medical facilities, our hospitals would be overwhelmed, and that would create its own series of problems for the people suffering from coronavirus, but it would cause a second order problem for the people who had other sicknesses. Coronavirus is not the only thing people die of. People still have burst appendixes and pancreatitis and they're getting chemo. And, you know, there's a lot of people who will be denied critical care if our hospitals get overwhelmed. And I just thought that was a point worth making. And I didn't think it was being made, again, for the reasons just stated. And so I felt a moral obligation to say it, both on the show and also privately to people I spoke to, and that would include the president. So it was nothing, you know, I didn't have a dream or anything where I was, you know, revealed the future or anything like that. I think the reason that I felt so strongly about it was just that I could see it. And yeah. the reason I could see it was not because I'm especially insightful. I'm not. It's because I'm not emotionally attached to the Trump story in a way that most journalists are. I have feelings about Trump, but I've covered a lot of presidents. He's an unusual one. We'll probably have more unusual ones. I, but I'm not waking up in the middle of the night brooding about Trump. That makes me a normal person, but it also makes me an anomaly in journalism. Well, I think, you know, what did Orwell say about, you know, the hardest thing is seeing what's in front of your nose. I think there's a, there's a little bit of that. Right. But again, I think you're being too self-effacing here because, I mean, you, you went to Mar-a-Lago, didn't you? You went, you went to a party which Trump was, was at. Well, I didn't mean to his... go to the party, actually. I didn't know there was a party in progress. And I literally walked into it and without knowing it was there. I went only to talk to the president, and I did it on my own. I didn't tell my bosses at Fox. I didn't want to get the network involved in it. It had nothing to do with Fox whatsoever. I was only going because I thought that I could, and I thought that I should use the opportunity to do some small piece of good if I could. Mm. And I was encouraged by my wife, who's a fervent Anglican, you know, whose point, I didn't want to go at all, actually, at all. But my wife's point was, you have the opportunity to do this, and it's the right thing to do, and you should get in the car and go do it. So I drove four hours over, and I did it. So and I didn't say, by the way, anything that I haven't said a million times on my show. I just felt that I should. And I don't know if it had an effect. I haven't talked to them since. I don't plan to. It's very much not my job to do things like that. But in this one case, I thought I should. Well, I don't want to press you, but I mean, what did you say? Did you say, Mr. President, I don't think you're taking this as seriously as, as you should be? I just, I said exactly what I say on my show, which is, or what I was saying at the time, which was, this is a species of the flu, but it's not the flu that you're familiar with. It spreads much more easily. The death rate, which we still don't know because we don't have a baseline number for infections because we don't have randomized testing over big populations. So we don't, these are all kind of informed guesses, but it seems to spread much more easily than most versions of influenza, and it seems to kill more people. And this could very easily overwhelm our healthcare system, which isn't really a system, but a patchwork of different hospitals. And that could be really bad for the country. And I know that there are people saying otherwise, 
but I'm just telling you in my capacity as a semi-informed private citizen, I think that they're wrong, respectfully. I understand why they think that, but I don't think they're right. I think this, and here's what I think. And so I, I laid it out over you know more than an hour because I had been thinking about it a lot and doing a lot of segments on it. Again, and I just want to be really clear. I'm not being defensive. I'm being honest. Mm. I didn't say anything that I haven't said before and since on television. I just wanted to emphasize it because there is something different about speaking to a person in private, you know, from saying something into a camera. Yes, you, know? you could watch the president's reaction for once. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I will say, I mean, I don't know this because you can't know it, but my instinct is that everything I said comported with what he knew was true. Yeah. And I think that's very often the case with Trump, who, who clearly has a lot of things working against him, you know, being hated by every power center in American life, for example. And I think he also has excesses and ticks that make it harder for him to govern, obviously. But I think the reason he became president in spite of all of that and has governed in spite of all of that is because he has good instincts, in some cases very good instincts, and he generally listens to them. Yeah. And to the extent that he goes off course, this is one man's view, but I think to the extent he screws up, it's because he's talked out of obeying his own instincts. And my impression on this from day one has been that Trump knew because he could feel that it was a problem. You know, if you're Trump, you don't survive all that he's been through, multiple bankruptcies and marriages and media attacks and, and all the things, you know, that he's been through in 73 years. You don't get through that and become president anyway without a very finely honed sense of danger, impending danger. You need to be – and people have this or they don't. Some people can feel it coming and others can't, and he can. And so I've always thought that he sensed that this was coming, and people around him told him it's not a big deal. And it's very easy to believe the happier forecast than it is the threatening forecast. That, that's been my – again, again, it's kind of an unprovable hypothesis, but that's always been my opinion. Well, but I mean, Trump's genius, as you suggest, is perhaps his sort of you know intuition and his common man intuition in a way. And I think with yes. with 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 the sort of the the pivot we've seen from his administration this week, which certainly seems to be his line, which is that the cure can't be worse than the disease, and if necessary, we will take the step of reopening the American economy, even if that involves a great deal of risk to human life. That's a very difficult decision. And of course, now that the media has shifted into full on hysteria about coronavirus they're going to scream at him about it but it looks as though at least polling suggests it looks as though the public see that that's the decision that a leader probably should take so i would say just one thing because i think it's interesting i would argue that trump's genius is more specific even than that his instinctive genius it's it's not that he has an intuitive grasp on what to do you know he's not a natural policy guy I think Trump's genius is in feeling a threat. So Trump brilliantly identified what the main threats to America are. Globalization is a huge threat to the country. I don't think Trump has a clearly articulated vision of what the alternative is, but I think he was able to explain in 2016, and at his best moments he still does, able to explain what's going to undo us. And the things that are going to undo us are, you know, Dependence on foreign supply chains for critical goods, for example, pharmaceuticals, 
military equipment, the you know death of the middle class, unrestrained immigration. Like he knows what the threats are, mm. and that you know that's an incomplete set of skills. Of course, you, you may need more than that to govern. You know, we could debate it, but that's a very helpful at this point in American history, a very helpful set of skills, in my opinion. So as for his view now, this my read on it is nobody really knows what to do, and we should be honest in saying that all courses are fraught with peril. Shutting down the country, believing the epidemiologists that we can, we can stop the spread at least temporarily by isolating people from one another, there's probably some truth in that. Is it as true as they suggest it is? Of course not. Nothing is. But there's probably some truth in that. That entails massive risk. That's not the safe course. There is no safe course, but that's a course. Yeah. So anyone who tells you that that's the cautious thing to do is an idiot because it's not cautious. Again, there's no safe answer. Everything we do will entail hurting people, period. So you have to start with that acknowledgement. And maybe once you do acknowledge that, you get to the right view, which is my view, and that is it's all a balance. You know what I mean? Everything you do has a downside, just as in life, and you just need to weigh you know, what you want, what sort of country you want to live in five years from now. And, and so I think Trump is – I don't think he's coming up – like ideally you want a leader who's like, here are the eight things you need to do to make it better. You're never going to get that with Trump. And I don't think you're probably going to get that from anybody under these circumstances, anyone who's being honest, because we don't actually know what the best course is. Yeah. But Trump's helpful insight here is that there is a downside to shutting the country down. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't, but it does mean you should go in eyes wide open. And epidemiologists aren't the best people to make that determination. That's why we have never elected an epidemiologist president, and we never will because their range of vision is just too narrow. Just in the same sense, I hope we never elect an academic economist president, because the same thing applies. These are specialists whose judgment you rely upon to make your judgments, but you don't substitute their judgment for yours, because that would be insane. Yes. Right? And also in a democracy, it violates the basic precept, which is the public gets to decide, and they do it through their elected leaders. This is a political decision that needs to be made. It's not purely a public health decision. I'm sorry. It's supposed to be that way. And nobody says it out loud because it sounds bad, but I don't care. Well, and, and, and it's I, true. And as you suggest, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're the most brilliant mind that's ever existed. You're never going to be able to absorb enough information for a problem like this. And so intuition is the best thing you've got. Well, but also it's not it's not a matter of information. I mean, first of all, our reserve of information is very shallow because, as I said, we don't have the one thing you need, which is a baseline. You have to know how many people are infected before you can successfully compute any other equation, like what the death rate is, what the physical damage of the disease is on average, what the transmission rate is. You can't know any of those things without a reliable set of numbers across the population, and we don't have that for a simple reason. We don't have enough tests. Yeah. So there you go. You're working in incomplete data. You usually are under these circumstances. Stop whining. Move on forward on what you have. But, I mean, I actually think part of the problem and part of the root of the public's fear, and my fear, too, I'm not judging anyone, is an unwillingness to acknowledge that on the big things we are not in control. And that's basically a theological precept, 
that we're not comfortable with because we don't ever talk about anything that's not rooted in materialism. You know, how much do people have? How much does this cost? You know what I mean? Like, we don't even use that language. But in times of life and death, you're forced to because that's the only language that explains it. And so you're dealing with a country, the first really large-scale experiment in secular democracy ever, like in history. You can say the Soviet Union was secular, but really it wasn't. It was a religious cult based on you know, Das Kapital. It was, it was a very religious country. Ours is really the first, and ours meaning the whole West, yours too. This well, is the first experiment in secular materialism over a big population. And it works great if your job is to supply people with enough calories. Like, it works for sure. <laughs> yeah. What it doesn't do a very good job of is explaining death. That's really where it falls down. And so our response has been to basically ignore death and put poor people in homes and then they like just kind of disappear and no one talks about what happened. Well, that, but in a time that, like this, death is at the forefront. You can't ignore it. We're all brooding about it. And our leaders and, and our even our people, too, don't really have a good way of thinking about it. And so let me just suggest as a non-theologian, not especially faithful Christian, let me just say, the thing to remember is you don't have control. You weren't responsible for your birth. You likely won't be able to choose the moment of your death. This is what it is to be human. I don't have an answer as to why it's that way, but it is, always has been, always will be. And the sooner you internalize that, the clearer your thinking can become. Well, do you not think Americans might actually have an advantage there? Because, yes, you're a secular country, but you're far more Christian than Britain is. And certainly in public life, you're far more Christian. I mean, the thought of well, a, a prime minister having... Place in the world other than Spain is more Christian than Britain is. I mean, Britain is the most aggressively, angrily secular place I've ever been. And I, I say that with no respect. I'm sorry. There's a lot <laughs> about Britain I love, but, but that's the ugliest part of your culture by far, in my opinion. But we are much more like Britain than you realize. Like, if you look at that, and I'm interested in this, again, and I don't want to, I'm an Episcopalian. I'm not, I'm hardly an evangelical. I'm not even close. But I'm interested in the topic. And if you look at the polling on religious faith, just even on church attendance, I mean, it has dropped off a cliff. This country has become more secular more quickly than any place in the world other than maybe Spain after 1975 when Franco died which really did become like almost immediately non-observant after he died. Yeah. But America has really changed in the last 10 years. And there are probably a lot of upsides to that. I mean, it's a lot easier to have sex with strangers than it's ever been. <laughs> so I guess that's good if you're in college. But the downside is it leaves us much less prepared psychologically and spiritually for a pandemic. Like, cause we're not ready we're not ready for what that means and what it always means, no matter what your medical establishment does, no matter how smart your leaders are, what it always means is lots of people die before their time. That's just that that's part of it. That's why it's called a pandemic. That's why you fear it. Yeah. And if you're not ready to handle that as a population, it causes a lot of problems. I mean, I would love to see a sober analysis of how faithful religious communities are responding to this as compared to, say, the neighborhood I live in, which is, you know, affluent and secular. And it would be interesting to find out. Well, you'd imagine that, that a religious group would be more stoic and less swinging slightly less wildly between despair and, and blind optimism. You would definitely assume that. I would assume that in any case. I don't know if it's true because I, I haven't, as far as I know, no one's looked at it. But 
my instinct would be that that's true. And I'd know for myself, it's a comfort. You know, I'm, I'm not, you know, repeating the Niacine Creed every morning over coffee, but I do remind myself throughout the day because I've got my nose in all these coronavirus horror stories, all of which are real. I, I keep reminding myself, you don't have control. I mean, I got exposed to three separate people who are confirmed carriers of coronavirus. Yeah. I feel fine, but there have been moments where I start to, you know, you, your skin crawls when you think, well, maybe I have this or, you know, and I smoked for so long and it's a problem and all stuff. And I just keep reminding myself it's, it's beyond human control as so much is. My kids know, know someone who's 25, who's in a coma, okay. who's a college athlete, looks like he's going to die. And they were telling me about this last night, and I, I was thinking, you know, why would a college athlete, this goes against everything that we think we know about the virus, why would this, you know, die, so I asked, well, you know, did he have chronic asthma, did mm. he have mono, did he have some pre-existing health condition that predisposed him? No, we don't think he did, his parents don't think he did. And it kind of leaves you facing the truth, which is you can make predictions that are broadly true, but in the end, you know, fate still exists and I, I wish it didn't i wish everything were predictable but it's not and that's just the nature of life and we have spent too little time thinking about that well i mean have you been struck by the way a lot of conservatives or or should i say you know people perhaps in that you and i know i'd call them the sort of paleocon kind of trad calf crowd have reacted to this crisis i mean i think that they were perhaps alert to the danger rather sooner. But also there's been this kind of, I think, slightly sick tendency to say this is this is what the world had coming. You know, this is finally we are being punished for, for our sins or something. I mean, I, I don't I don't like that kind of talk. You know, that's not the, the phrase they use in the United States is the faith tradition that I come from at yeah. all. And I don't think we should ever gloat or enjoy the suffering of others ever. Yeah, I think that's a really ugly impulse to have you know all of us are going to die in the end and i believe we're gonna because i i do believe in in the eternal nature of human souls and and i do think that we will discover on the other side what all of this means and why the innocent suffer and why the wicked prosper and you know all the kind of eternal mysteries i think will be revealed to us but i think in the meantime it's very bad form and maybe even unwise to start saying or even thinking things like that. I don't think it's good. It's not good. Yes. When people are suffering, it should hurt you. Well, and when they're thriving, it should please you. But, because we are all connected. I, I really, I'm a simple man, and I think like that. And if I find myself enjoying the suffering of others, I scold myself. And I think we all should, because it's not, it's not good at all. In fact, I'm down in Florida right now, and I was sitting writing a script, and I looked up, and there was an iguana on the wall of my house. And so I went to my drawer, and I've got a pellet pistol there, and I'm a person <laughs> shot, and I thought, I'm going to kill the iguana. And so I walk out. I hate iguanas. They're terrifying, big, giant lizards with teeth. And I thought, I'm going to kill this thing. It's in my house. I'm going to kill it. And then I thought, you know, and I hunt, by the way, and I also eat meat. But I thought, all this suffering going on, do I really want to, like, shoot something right now? <laughs> and I didn't. Not kill the iguana, and I thought I'm sure I'll kill many iguanas going forward. But right now, I thought maybe a little less suffering in the world would be good. And if it's right now it means not shooting an iguana, then that's fine with me. It's a shame that you don't write as much anymore because I can see a consider the iguana essay coming. <laughs> <laughs> no, because it would cast me as the hero, <laughs> and um, 
I, I do think, especially as you age, this is the pitfall that writers and maybe all people sort of find themselves trapped in. You make it all about yourself. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you start writing about, you know, stories whose main, if, if unspoken but, but real theme is I'm a great guy, then, you, you know, you should pull back and go fishing. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, so aside from the theology and the, and the sort of the godly elements in this, which are fascinating... I mean, thinking about conservatives again, I've been struck by how enthusiastic a lot of conservatives are for state intervention. And I think that's something that perhaps you've helped cultivate. And I think it's perhaps a good thing in a way that we are not so obsessed with the free market. But do you have you ever thought in the last few days that we're going too far now and we've gone from just sort of a hatred of extreme neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it, to a kind of a kind of right wing state socialism? We're moving towards that, which is not necessarily a good development. Someone who worked for the state highway department in the state of Maine, which is our northeasternmost state, once told me that the majority of fatalities on Maine roads occurred when someone veered off on his side of the road into the gravel and then whipped the wheel in the opposite direction and hit a tree. Yeah. He said the majority of fatalities are one-car accidents in which that happens. And I thought that's the clearest metaphor for American politics I've ever heard. Yeah, the over- everything is overcorrection. Overcorrection. So you yeah. ignore a problem, and then you go all in and fixing it, and create a brand new set of problems. I mean, that really is the whole story right there. It's true of everything. It's always true. It's like the unchangeable truth of American politics, and maybe politics in other countries too. I, I, I don't know enough, but yes, of course, it goes without saying. You know, my position has always been not that we need to become a socialist government country i certainly don't think that but just that when you find yourself governing by theory alone you become a pharisee that's it i mean that was the critique of the pharisees it's not that they weren't religious enough they certainly were they were too religious actually but they were completely caught up in the letter of the law in the theory of it rather than in you know the practice of it in the human effect yeah and I think that that's true of a lot of different systems, and it certainly has become true over the decades of American conservatism, where you you know you read a road to serfdom, you know you read Hayek or von Mises, you attend a couple lectures at Cato, and you think you're a libertarian, and you've got the world figured out, and it's kind of this seamless theory of everything. And next thing you know, you're arguing to privatize the sidewalks, and you never <laughs> pause to ask the basic questions, like the most basic, which is, do people really want this? Which is another way of asking, does my solution comport with human nature, mm. whose features are unchanging? Like, that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. It's like, just take people into account when you make systems designed for people. Yeah. But you think now there might be an overcorrection on the right? Uh, of course there is. Yeah. I mean, we're not capable in a country of 320 million people with a political system designed to be unwieldy. It's unwieldy because we want political power to be diffuse. The founders did. It's not possible in that kind of system, in that kind of country, to use fine motor skills yeah. at all. Like, we don't have fine motors. Like, imagine someone chopped your thumbs off and asked you to paint a painting. Yeah. That's kind of what our system is like. <laughs> so, you know, it's possible you would be able to paint a painting whose images I would recognize as you know, familiar objects. Oh, that's a tree. You know, that's a cloud. That's the ocean. (laughs) 
but it would not be a thing of beauty, right? No. <laughs> right. I it guess... wouldn't be. It would be it would be a painting by a man with no thumbs. I'd so like just you to try and draw an iguana. Yeah, that's what we're producing. Yes. <laughs> but I think if we look at Trump, and I, I know obviously one doesn't want to get into just a purely, you know, is this good or bad for Trump discussion. But it does seem to me, if you look at the coronavirus and the deep themes that it's forcing us to address, these are all themes that, as you suggested, Trump touches on. The evisceration of the middle class, the threat of China, the threat to freedom of speech. These are all things in which Trump intuitively speaks to the American people. So this whole idea that started that, you know, Trump was finished, the Trump presidency was over because he was, you know, too much of a child to be able to handle a serious crisis. In fact, you know, if you look at this more broadly, a lot of the themes that are emerging out of Corona are themes that might make Trump stronger as a political candidate. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about that. I think you need to separate Trump from his 2016 platform. I mean, whether or not Trump gets reelected depends upon a lot of different factors, including who the Democrats run against him. And it's hard to imagine it'll be Joe Biden who has dementia and isn't capable of leading the country. I say that in sadness, but it's true. Yeah. So there's a lot of different elements in that question. I think there's no question about how thoroughly the coronavirus pandemic ratifies Trump's predictions. I mean, he said China was a problem. International trade, as currently constituted, exposed America in dangerous ways. Those, I mean, those are just like two of the most obvious. Mm. Those are both true. They've always been true. And now it's very hard to deny they're true. I mean, is anybody going to be, could, could you with a straight face say, as the, all Democratic candidates did three months ago, we need to let the rest of the world come in here and use our healthcare system for free? Really? Are you really going to say that right now? You yeah. know, we need. Five million more people from the third world living in America tomorrow. It'll make us stronger. I mean, I don't think there's a single person who believes that. I also don't think there's a single person who believes climate change is, you know, the most pressing threat we face. I think a lot of people think it's a threat. They may be right. But is it the most pressing threat? Doesn't feel that way right now. No. So Trump's worldview, and I'm using that phrase with air quotes because, you know, it's hard to know what Trump personally thinks, but the platform that he articulated and the movement that he started, I mean, I think a lot of their core views have been vindicated. I don't really see another way to consider it. I, I really don't. I, and I don't think I'm like, I agree with a lot of that stuff. So, you know, I want to think that, but I think objectively it's true. And, and then if you look at who he's going to face in Joe Biden, I mean, from my distant position, that seems to be an ever more weird candidacy. I mean, now with Corona, it's becoming a sort of virtual candidacy. And he's doing these very odd press conferences. I mean, I suppose in a way it helps him that he's, he's not out there every day meeting people because he doesn't seem to be in control of his senses. Is this a fair assessment of Joe Biden? I, I don't say this. I mean, I, I don't think Joe Biden will be on will be the candidate in November. You don't? I don't. I mean, I, I don't have any special knowledge of it. But Joe Biden is in cognitive decline. Everyone around him knows that. I know Joe Biden, and I've known him for a long time. And I'm from Washington, where, you know, he spent the last 50 years. And he's very gregarious and very charming. I've always liked Joe Biden. I still don't hate Joe Biden at all. I disagree with him, but I've always liked him. He's impossible not to like. And if you had dinner with him five years ago, you would have liked him, too. 
But everyone around him will tell you, and some have said it in public, that Joe Biden is in cognitive decline. He has some form of, you know, recognizable dementia. And I hate even to say that out loud because it's poignant. It's sad. You know, we're all facing that possibility. I'm 50. I mean, how long before that happens to me? It might. Yeah, I'm 40 and it's uh, already happened. I feel bad about it, but I just don't believe, knowing the Democratic Party as well as I do, that they will settle for that because, I mean, their plan was to use Joe Biden as a vessel. You know, pick a strong vice president. Biden won't make it through his first term. That person will become president. All their priorities will be front and center. That's what they thought was going to happen. But in a moment of crisis, voters will not vote for someone they perceive as weak. They won't. They'll vote for someone they don't really like, who has solutions that make them nervous, as long as they think that person is strong. Because people are animals, and under pressure, they become even more like they are, which is animals. And they and people follow strength. They do not follow weakness. That's the first and last rule of politics and leadership. And Joe Biden is weak, and it's obvious. So I think given how much Democrats want to beat Trump, they will find a way to replace him. Well, if you say that to people in Washington, they say, but the rules are this, the rules are that. And my view is the Democratic Party doesn't care about rules in the first place. That's why they were pushing the vote on 16-year-olds last year. I mean, they don't care. It's whatever it takes. That's why they're flooding the country with foreign nationals, because they want them to vote, because they're subverting the democracy. They don't care about the rules. They don't have abstract concerns. Only right-wingers care what books say. I mean, this is like the huge difference between the right-wing and the left-wing outlook. Right-wingers care about principles, and if they lose upholding those principles, they feel virtuous. Democrats care about wielding power, and if they lose for any reason, they hate themselves because they failed, and they're diminished by it, and they know that they are. So they want to win. They can't win with Biden. They will get somebody else. How will they do it? I don't know. All I know is they will. Are you willing to make a prediction as to who they might bring in? Well, I mean, the obvious candidate right now is Andrew Cuomo, yeah. the governor of New York, who's been giving daily press conferences, which have gotten high marks across the board, by the way, not just from liberals, but from, you know, moderate people, some conservatives. He, he knows what he's doing. He's smart. He's in command. He's got an authoritarian temperament. He has no problem telling people what to do. That's a long tradition in New York. And so he looks like a very strong candidate. Now, he's, I know him, and he's got, he definitely has weaknesses. But right now, I wouldn't you, you know, him, I don't. But I wouldn't say he scores very highly on the likability index. Well, that's putting it mildly. <laughs> but in a in a moment of crisis, that recedes in importance. I mean, for example, every mayor of New York in my lifetime has had a kind of overbearing, brutish, authoritarian personality. The only one who didn't was the least popular one, David Dinkins, who was the black mayor in the late 80s, early 90s. And. He was very left-wing, but he was also kind of a gentle character. And I always thought people hated him for that, because New York is a city of 8 million people, you know, closely packed, high-density city. So by definition, every day is a crisis in New York, every day. People are getting pushed in front of subway cars and murdered in parks, and there are all kinds of weird diseases floating around New York on every day of the year. And so every day is a crisis. People can feel it, and so they invariably elect an authoritarian. And even if they don't agree with him, they like him. And the more authoritarian, the better. I mean, but the, Michael Bloomberg was a very popular mayor of New York. But and it, he was like borderline fascist. I mean, he wanted to determine like what you ate. Yeah. And people liked it. But it's and, interesting you mentioned... The rest of the country is going to look a lot more like New York and its voting preferences if we're afraid 
on election day. It's just it's just human nature. It's simple. But it's interesting you mentioned Bloomberg because Cuomo is not a popular mayor. I mean, I don't think he's perceived to have been have done a good job, is he? Certainly, look at the subway system. Not a popular governor. No, no, he's not, not a popular governor. Sorry, no, sorry, governor. he's not, and he's got all kinds of problems, and he's he's distrusted by a lot of African American voters, and you know there are a lot of problems with him, and, and people close to him have gotten in trouble for corruption, for sure. But the moment makes the man. I mean, Winston Churchill, a number of times in his career, was unpopular and discredited, and then you know now he's credited with saving the West. It's just, you know, the guy who's in a position of authority and in a position to exhibit strength in a moment of crisis becomes a completely different person in the eyes of the public. Rudy Giuliani was not very popular in his final days as mayor of New York, but on one of his last days as mayor of New York, 9-11 happened. And he was seen as decisive and calm and fluent in the facts and reassuring, most of all, and he became America's mayor. He became one of the most famous people in the world. And so it, it really depends. Like leadership is a combination of the innate qualities of the person, who that person really is, and the moment in which he governs. It's just true. So the guy who happens to, you know, give the reassuring press conference day after day at a time when everybody's afraid and everybody's paying attention is a completely new person. It's not the Andrew Cuomo of two weeks ago at all. He's a new guy. It's like we just created him. Well, Tucker, I think we'll end it there. But thank you so much for joining us. It's been fascinating, as always. And we we got pretty theological there. So I think I'll end by saying, God bless you and Godspeed. (laughs) God bless you, Freddie. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite.